Welcome to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay in Baltimore, and welcome to a new series of Reality Asserts Itself. Our guest this week is a man who's become a cultural icon in Washington, D.C. He runs a chain of restaurants called Busboys and Poets that's become a hub for pretty well every progressive cultural thing that ever happens in D.C. And, of course, that not a lot of very progressive things happen in D.C. out on Capitol Hill and the White House and such. So whenever something does happen, it usually gravitates to busboys and poets. He's been an anti-war activist. He's also gotten pretty wealthy, according to the newspapers, doing all this. He's been called, uh, I think, the rich socialist, one of his uh, uh, running opponents says, and that's another piece of this man's uh, story. Andy Shalal is also running for mayor of D.C., and I'm going to talk a little bit about how we're going to handle that, but first I'm going to introduce Andy, who now joins us in the studio. Hi, Andy. Hello, Paul. So a little bit of bio here. Andy, as I said, is the owner of Busboys and Poets. It opened in 2005. Uh, it's been a center, as I said, for politics, culture, and art in D.C. In 2003, he founded Iraqi Americans for Peaceful Alternatives in opposition to the invasion of Iraq and has been involved in the peace movement. He's been very involved in developing things like Arab-Jewish dialogue and such, and we're going to find a lot more now. So, as everybody knows who watches Reality Asserts Itself, the first part is usually personal. We ask our guests about why they think what they think rather than what they think, which we'll explore in the, in the next segments or so. So, let's start from the beginning. You're born in Baghdad in 1958. Um, in 1955. But thank you for making me three years younger. That's good. All right. So you're born in Baghdad, and you grew up there for the first 10 <clears> years. So how much of that 10 years is who you are? I think a lot happens uh, the first 10 years of life. You know, your, your values are shaped the way you, you're, you're, you grow up, the interactions with family and how you see yourself within the family structure and so on. I think that makes a big difference. But so, I, think, I think a lot of what happened to me, at least in what shaped my future thinking in politics, happened here. So uh, as you grew up, your father is a diplomat? Yes, he was. Uh, this is pre-Saddam? Yes, it certainly was. So describe your Well, memories. pre the second Saddam. You know, Saddam was there in the early 60s as well. Then he left. He was spirited by the CIA to go to Cairo and live there for a while. They paid for his apartment. And then he came back to Iraq. The uh, political atmosphere in your household, yes. the kind of ideas, the discussion. I mean, it's, I, I guess it's pretty political, is it? Your father's a diplomat. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I think, you know, politics is interesting in the Middle East, and, and certainly in my household. My father was always very politically engaged. So political engagement in the Middle East sometimes just means you listen to the radio a lot, and you curse at the television set, and you curse at the news. There's not a lot of actual activism or being involved in politics because that could cost you your life. So a lot of the, uh, what I experienced was certainly my father, uh, my family, my uncles and others were just debates, constant debates about politics and, uh, you know, conspiracies and ideas and things. You know, so it's quite, quite uh, robust. Now, you're, you're known now for your progressive politics, you know, which you know, means a lot of things, but it also means you know, sympathy for, fighting for social justice, economic mm -hmm. justice, and so on. But I'm assuming your family is an elite family, if your father is a serious diplomat, when you're growing up. 
I mean, how conscious are you of, of you know, of the poverty, of the situation, you know, sort of class questions in Iraq as you grow up? I mean, we were middle class, really. I mean, Iraq had a very strong middle class, and uh, we were in the middle class. We weren't wealthy uh, by Iraq standards or by even U.S. standards. Uh, so in that sense, I, I, I grew up really an average family. The, the, what's your understanding of the United States as you grew up? Uh, is, is the, you know, there's already one in the general atmosphere in the Arab world, you know, for good reason. Yeah. The United States one-sidedly supports Israel, and, uh, and, and, and I guess much of the Arab world tries to get out of the United States what it, what it's, what it can, but it's, 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 it's a love-hate with a lot of hate in that relationship. Yeah. Well, the idea that you didn't want to be on the wrong side of the United States, so that was kind of uh, at least my impression, and certainly at the age of 10, my impression of the United States was about culture, about television. It was cowboys and Indians and things like that that we used to watch on television. So you didn't grow up in a, in a, in a, in a hyper anti-U.S. kind of atmosphere? Oh, no. Yeah. There is no hyper anti-U.S. I don't know where that came from. I mean, there's, not a, there's maybe there are people that really dislike U.S. policies. But there's not... No, I meant that. The, yeah, the, yeah, there's not that. Even back then, it wasn't... It wasn't uh, there was no hyper uh, anything against the U.S. In fact, when my father found out we were coming to the United States because he was going to be a representative for the Arab League here, it was like the most exciting thing that's ever happened. You know, everyone wanted to come to America, but America was far. You know, you had to travel quite a bit to get there, and it wasn't accessible. It wasn't, you know, people went to Europe uh, that were able to, but they didn't come to the United States. So having the opportunity to come to the United States was huge. People were like, calling us, the phone wouldn't stop ringing when my father found out that we were coming here to tell us this is so exciting, I can't believe you're going to uh, basically Hollywood. And back then, you know, Jackie Onassis was considered, you know, the, the, the emblematic figure of American, you know, women and culture and style and all of that. So it was, it was kind of a, a big deal. Um, so your, your father is assigned to the United States and around the age of 10 you come to the United States. And then Saddam comes to power in a coup in Iraq, and your father can't go back. You know, lots of political turmoil that was going on at the time, and lots of, uh, you know, my father was in the old government, and uh, so the new government comes in. There's usually a sweep, you know. They, when a new government comes, they do some cleansing. Uh, they, they round up the people that were with the old government, either lock them up or kill them. And so my father thought, maybe it's a good idea for me to just hang out here for a while till things kind of settle down. Did he lose his job? He's no longer the representative for Iraq well, to the Arab League. The, the Arab League was not, was not an Iraqi thing. It was really out of Egypt. I mean, at that time, Nasser was uh, the president of uh, Egypt, and uh, the Arab League center was in Cairo. And so Nasser was the one that, or he was the one that offered my father the job. So he really was not an Iraqi so representative. So he keeps his job. Well, as you come to the United States and <clears> you grow up and a young man, you are a completely political being. You may do restaurants and cultural stuff, but you're a political well, being. You know, what shapes that for you? I think you know when we first came here uh, when I was ten years old, it was it was a very different country. You know, you watch America through the lens of the TV set back what, then. What year are we in? Uh, this is 1966. So we, we came here, we came, we lived in Virginia, Arlington, Virginia at the time. And uh, being kind of a, a person with, uh, you know, my race was ambiguous 
to most Americans. They didn't know, are you black, are you white? There wasn't a lot of brown in-betweens, you know, back then. It was you were either black or you were white. And I remember going to uh, middle school at that time and uh, having to check off a box. I remember for the first time having to check off a box, are you black, white, or other? And it was very confusing, um, quite strange to be in a country where you had to pick a team, you know, uh, of race. Uh, race was a whole new construct in my mind, certainly. I wasn't prepared for it. And uh, so we'd leave the... So what did you check off? Uh, we'd leave it blank because, you know, I didn't think I was white. I didn't think I was black. And no kid wants to be the other. That's kind of a strange place to be. But in fact, that is what you were. Right. But the other is, is a strange space for a young child. But you want to fit in. But whether you check the box off or not, do you start to internalize that I'm in oh, that yeah. sphere called other? I'm definitely different uh, than everybody else. And then, you know, the, uh, the, the, the kids would be giggling and talking about, you know, who, who, what are you? How I, was your English? Very weak. Uh, we didn't speak English, and uh, they would they would giggle as and and the common question is what are you? And I thought only in America would you ask what are you? You know, I'm a human. Uh, you know, and and trying to f you know figure that out, and people would be always laughing, giggling about it. And then 1968 came around, and Martin Luther King was assassinated, and we saw the streets go on fire. People were like burning buildings and all this smoke, smoldering in the distance. And suddenly you realize that race is serious business in this city, in this country. And you start understanding this overlay of race or underlay of race that covers almost everything that happens here. Uh, it's part of the DNA of this country. Nothing moves without a racial component to it at some level or another. So for us, 1966 was, um, was a year where it was actually illegal for a black person and a white person to marry in the state of Virginia. It wasn't until 1967 that that law was overturned. And so seeing how race played out, it determined everything. It determined where you lived, um, who your friends were, where you sat in the cafeteria. It, it, it determined what kind of job you got. And, it was and, and what does it very determine? interesting. And, and what does it determine for you in terms of your identity, where you fit in all this, and what do you want to be? Because, you know, I would say within the predominant culture, you would want to get to be as white as you could. Right, right. So trying to figure it out, of course, I wasn't accepted in the white group, uh, you know, so obviously you want to go to the dominant group, um, but we were, not, we were not accepted, certainly wasn't accepted in the, in the black group. And so we stayed in this sort of limbo state, really, for a long time. And it's funny because I, my brother looks more white than I do, and so he did not have the same experiences I had. I have, a, I have two sisters also. One of them looks African-American. She could pass for a light-skinned African-American easily. The, the other one looks like she's Italian or French, you know, complete European looking. And so it, when I talk to my sisters, my, the, the darker sister and I have much more in common uh, of how we interpreted race as my older siblings. Uh, who, who were lighter and had a whole different experience. And how has that affected the way you look at things politically? I think, you know, then moving fast forward, uh, living in Washington, D.C., uh, understanding the nuance of race, you know, how race really determines so much of what's going on. I know it's, it wasn't 1968 anymore, but even years later, decades later, 
race still plays a very significant role, not only in Washington, D.C., but certainly in the United States as well. You know, we elected a black president, and we are far from being post-racial. So people understand race is very, very significant what happens. So sure. what, what, what event is the sort of triggering event for you that, that really engages you? Or? I think the assassination of Martin Luther King was very significant. The fact that people were so angry, uh, I didn't know where that anger came from. You know, I learned about American history at some level. But, you know, and also your, your school and the school environment. And then, of course, 1967 uh, was another important year when the Six-Day War happened between the Arabs and the Israelis. And that also colored my perspective of how America plays a role in that conflict. Specifically? Well, having, having a teacher that was in the school that, I, that, uh, that my brother and I both went to, the middle school, where the teacher was, uh, was, uh, was a Zionist, and she was speaking about how the Arabs were trying to push Israel into the sea and how, you know, thank goodness, the, you know, Israel was able to counteract that uh, huge, huge uh, push and, you know, and really a very strong pro-Israeli perspective uh, of history. Uh, she, she hung a picture of Moshe Dayan, I remember, in the classroom and pointed to him as a hero. And, you know, for, for, for me, of course, being an Arab, that was a whole different story I was getting at home. And I remember, you know, during the 1967 war, my father had the, this little uh, Zenith uh, shortwave radio that had an antenna that went all the way to the ceiling so he could hear the news from one part of the world to the other. So he would pick up the early news from London and then move forward uh, as the sun came up, you know, to this side of the ocean. And really hearing the, the, the news during the 67 war, uh, the the, the six-day war, and I remember every day the news would become narrower and narrower because he was always looking for that sign of victory that the Arabs were going to have. And every, you know, every, every time he would listen to a certain news station, uh, you know, they would, they would uh, tip it to the other side. He would stop listening to that news station and continue to search for that one station that's going right. to give him the news that he wants to hear. And so, yeah, when we it, didn't have the real news then. <laughs> when, when it comes to checking off the other box, yeah. um, as we said, check it or not, you're the other on, the, on a racial basis. Uh, when it comes to 1967, you're the other again, because yes. the whole official narrative is pro-Israeli in the United States. And you're coming from an Arab family, sure. and you're hearing you know, the other side, but you're not hearing that outside the door, very outside the home. So how does that affect, you know, as an immigrant family, usually pretty quickly the kids buy into Americanism. Mm-hmm. But for you, it would have been not, I think, not so simple. I think you go through that process. You go through the process of trying to pretend you're something else, trying to uh, fit in in whatever environment you're in. You learn to be a chameleon in a sense, you know, trying to figure out where you are and trying to cause as less friction for yourself as possible. So obviously, there's going to be some of that processing that goes through at the beginning. And then after a while, you start figuring that you need to have your identity back. I mean, it's really important to do that. And, uh, you know, then you start to assert yourself. And you start, you know, when we, when we started college, we started getting involved in the International Student Association or people that really were more in line with our own experiences. And they were the internationals. They were the new immigrants. They were people that are moving in this country and themselves are trying to find their identity. And so we fit in with that group of people, I think, much more. So first Iraq war... Uh, is a, you become active yes. in opposing it. Yes. Um, now, you're opposing an invasion of Saddam's Iraq. You have relatives who were killed by Saddam. Right. Uh, 
Uh, is there any ambiguity or mixed feelings? For, I mean, is a part of you might not mind seeing a bomb fall on Saddam's head? Uh, well, I think by that time, we were Americans. You know, we've accepted the fact that we are Americans at that point. And by what, what year are we in again? This is uh, now 1990. Right. This is the first Gulf War uh, when, when Papa Bush was in charge uh, at that time. And so when, when that invasion was happening, it was really about America at that point. It really wasn't so much about Iraq. I'm an anti-war activist. So for me, war was not a solution to world problems, that there's other ways we can resolve things that are less destructive and less uh, um, unpredictable. And uh, so my interest was really to get involved in kind of holding the United States to a different standard and saying, hey, we are a superpower. We need to use our power not to destroy, but really to build and fix and create alliances. And to me, a war was not the way to go. I think I've, I started to sort of think, you know what, I'm an American now. That if I'm going to swear allegiance to a flag, I want to make sure that flag lives up to its values. And so I really got much more involved in American politics, in understanding of politics, understanding American history, what the role of citizenry is in the political process. So I got very engaged in that. In that. So when, when 1990 happened and the uh, invasion of Iraq was taking place then, I was very involved. I was out in the street. I was demonstrating. I was involved in, uh, in, in local politics and national politics. I started working on the Jerry Brown campaign at that time, a couple years later. When he ran for president, I became a delegate uh, at, the, uh, at the national convention and got very, very involved in local and national politics at that point. Okay, in the next segment of our, our interview, we're going to carry on with Andy. We're going to do a little bit more biography because I tried to do all this in the first segment, but he's lived too much life. I, can't, I couldn't do it in one segment. So in segment two, we're going to talk a little bit more biography, and then we're going to get into some of the current issues that he's grappling with as he runs for mayor of D.C. Please join us for the next segment of Reality Asserts Itself on the Real News Network.